Welcome to The Gut Check, nutrition and gut health for active people, a podcast where we are talking functional nutrition for functional fitness and a functional you. Remember, if your gut is not functioning optimally, you are not functioning optimally. I am your host, registered dietitian and nutritionist and OCR fan, Kate Klein. You can connect with me on Facebook at The Dublin Dietitian or go to my website for additional resources, services, and the video recorded versions of these episodes at www.dublindietitian.com. That's D-U-B-L-I-N-D-I-E-T-I-T-I-A-N. As a standard disclaimer, the information provided here is for educational purposes only. While I strive to provide accurate and helpful information to my listeners and viewers, I cannot take into account individualized circumstances. This is not a substitute for personalized nutrition, health, and medical advice from a health professional. If you are ready to get your personalized plan, you can go to DublinDietitian.com and schedule a complimentary strategy session to get a game plan in place for you to hit your health and fitness goals. So let's get to it. Good morning, Gut Check Tribe. Uh, Today's a bit of a different episode. The world of functional medicine moves really quickly and with the growing awareness, finally, of the importance of gut health and reducing inflammation, using food as medicine and lifestyle as medicine, it's gaining enough momentum that research is actually coming out faster really than any one person can keep up with. But I do my best. It is important for any medical professional to keep as up-to-date as possible on the research. Um, So every month I'm reading journal articles and attending lectures or viewing webinars, and I just wanted to share some of the news that I find and the research that I think is interesting and compelling and relevant. So uh, two things I have to share. The first is an article from the Journal of the International Society of Sports Nutrition about the effects of an acidic versus alkaline forming diet on a 400 meter sprint. And the other is from the Journal of the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics discussing fecal transplant use in chronic illness. Uh, Now, before you run away from the scoop about the poop, (laughs) we will talk about non-transplant things you can consider with health and illness as well. So let's start with that first article. It's actually from 2018, which isn't too bad. It's been sitting on my pile of to read articles since I came across it in 2018. So I figured it was past time to finally sit down, read this thing and get some notes from it. So the article is called enhanced 400 meter sprint performance in moderately trained participants by a four day alkalizing diet, a counterbalanced randomized controlled trial. So let me talk you through some of this first for those who are not aware of, um, I guess the context of what's going on here. So First, alkaline versus acid diet. Um, This has been, again, something that's been in research for a while, but sort of not fully accepted. The idea that certain foods will cause your body to become more acidic or alkaline. And a lot of the argument against this for the longest time was, oh, that's ridiculous. Your blood maintains its very balanced pH and it's not going to shift. No matter what you eat, your body will buffer it and keep your pH at the same level. And that's absolutely true. Your blood does maintain that pH level. But there's more to you and your body than just your blood. You also have your tissues and your organs and your urine and other cells in the body. 
So what we do know now, and it is a little more accepted now, is that what you eat can change the pH of your urine, um, some of the gases in your body, and some other things. So the other misconception here that a lot of people get is just because a food is acidic does not mean it's acid forming. So actually because of what's going on once this food enters your body and the way it, it deals with the mineral balance and the ratios, something like a lemon can actually be alkaline forming for your body. So it's generally understood that the standard American diet or the SAD diet is rather acidic. It's a lot of highly processed foods, poor quality, high fats, excessive proteins, and these things are more acid forming. Things like meat, cheese, eggs, and cereal products. And that's not to say you can't ever have these or they can't be included in a balanced thing, but when it's a lot of these or only these, we see more acid forming um, results in the body. On the other hand, typically it's going to be your fruits and vegetables are more base or alkaline forming. And there's actually a formula that can be used to determine um, what's called the potential renal acidic load, the PRAL or PRAL. And based on the amounts and the ratios of protein, potassium, sodium, phosphorus, sulfate, calcium, and magnesium, we can sort of rank and determine the, uh, the renal load, the acidic load on the body based on foods. So in a very general sense, a food list with um, high prowl or high acidic foods would be like your proteins, dairies, and grains, and your low prowl would be fruits and vegetables. This is just a very general starting point. We already know that an unhealthy processed acid forming diet is linked with health issues. And as they quote in the article, you know, the resulting metabolic acidosis is associated with the disease of civilization, such as obesity, diabetes, systemic hypertension, cardiovascular disease, and osteoporosis. And really there, there are more as well, not listed in that, that, that quotation. Now, what does this have to do with athletics? So there has long been this idea that helping to alkalize the body could boost performance since intense exercise can increase that acid load. People were doing things like sodium bicarbonate supplements or taking baking soda before activities to try to alleviate that burden, to try to help buffer the acid. And people would see that, yes, they could have some improvements and, and they were seeing that, that benefit. But there's a lot of GI issues that would get reported. And a whole side tangent I could get into are the risks and issues of too low stomach acid and screwing with your stomach pH. But if you're interested in that, check out episode eight, IBS, there are answers. Um, we do spend a good deal of time talking about the stomach, stomach acid, and all the uh, ripple effects that that can have on the body. Um, check that one out. Moving on. So what the researchers wanted to do here is see could an alkaline diet provide the same benefits without having to do supplementation as the bicarbonate? And what's not specifically noted in the research, but for me and, and the audience, you know, GI health, it also would mean you're not shifting the stomach pH levels. You're not causing those potential problems that happen if that pH is not where it should be. And instead using diet would focus on the whole body and all tissues instead of just starting in the stomach acid pH. So it was admittedly a small study, both in number of participants, as well as the duration of testing. They had only 11 participants. 
Um, but it's a starting point. So they took 11 recreationally athletic individuals in their mid twenties, some male, some female. And these were people who were used to sprinting activities, but not at any elite level. Um, but they were active people around 12 hours a week. And the design was that before any dietary changes were set in place, before they were instructed to change how they ate, they just were on their normal diets, that each person ran a 400 meter sprint. So that's typically one lap around a track. And they recorded the time. Then they had three days of nothing, followed by four days of a diet. And that was either the low prowl or the low acid forming, or uh, in the more basic, or the high prowl more acid forming diet. So they did four days, kind of divided the people were given one run or the other. And they did another 400 meter sprint after four days on the diet. So the, the idea with this, the three days of nothing and then four days of diet was to give them a full one week between their sprints so that the sprints were occurring at the same time of day and the same day of the week, each time to try to remove one of those variables. Then they had another three days of no specific diet, just kind of a washout phase followed by another four days where they flipped the diet. So if they'd been on the, the low prowl diet or the, um, the, the low acid diet, the fruits and veggie diet, then this time they did the more acidic forming diet or vice versa. And they again ran that 400 meter sprint. So what they found was a pretty significant time difference. And in my opinion, especially for only four days. Um, so these athletic individuals, short distance, again, just one lap around the track, those on the alkaline diet were 2.3% faster than those on the acidic diet. So they shaved an average of a, one and a half seconds off that single lap around the track. Not too bad for a short distance. Um, you know, maybe not anything if you're just trying to get out and, and do basic training, but if you trying to make some PRs, you're trying to hit some new records, try to shave a little bit, something to think about. Um, they also noted that unlike the GI issues reported with the bicarbonate, go figure, no reported ill effects with the dietary intervention. So kind of a cool study. There are, of course, some limitations to the study and the authors also acknowledge it, you know, things that jumped out at me immediately, one being it's only 11 people. Um, so definitely needing a bigger sample size, it'd be really great to see what happens with different types of activities and different um, distances or durations, you know, a, a 60 to 70 second sprints is going to be very different than, you know, a, a one mile run or longer, or even things like really short things like a hundred meter sprint. So be cool to see that difference. Um, different age groups, different fitness levels. And what I think would be very important, of course, dietitian, a longer period following a diet. Again, 2.3% increase in only four days is fantastic. But it's really interesting to me because usually when I have people do a big diet shift, especially if they're coming off kind of a standard diet onto what naturally does become a little bit more fruit and vegetable heavy, um, they start to get a like a detox slump around that period, around that day three to five is usually what I tell them. And it's not it's, it's around day seven to 10 that they've got this wonderful upswing of more energy and, and sleeping better and feeling better. So I'd be really curious what, um, at minimum, just a seven to day, seven to 10 day diet protocol could do. And then more 30 days ongoing, maybe not quite so strict because they did, um, they did note one of the other problems as well. 
um, the participants weren't directed on how to fuel properly regarding like calories or macronutrients or meal planning. They were just basically given a list of foods to eat. And the research noted that this was something that became problematic or, or potentially problematic because they, they realized as they were reviewing the food diaries, because these participants really didn't know how to fuel properly, it was, oh, okay, I'm on the low prowl. Cool. I'm just going to eat fruits and vegetables. Mm. versus, oh, I'm on the high prowl. Okay. Lots of grains and dairy. So, um, you know, what would it be if they actually had this in a little bit better balance, if they were still making sure that minerals and calorie intake were about the same? Um, again, if you're just eating fruits and veggies, you're on a four day slump, you're probably calorie, <laughs> you know, low calorie, and you're still shaving two and a, uh, 2.3% off your time. That's really cool to me. So I feel like there's a lot of potential with this article and a lot of cool things that probably are, should, and will eventually come forward with the effect of acid load on the body and dietary stuff. So a um, lot, of, lot of things to keep in mind, but hey, if you have an event coming up, you know, maybe give yourself at least four day boost prior to your sprint day, boost the fruits and vegetables, get your body used to that and see what you can do. So the second article, getting into the guts and the poop. So um, fecal microbiota transplant to prevent and treat chronic illness, implications for dietetic practice. So I, I had to laugh. Like, I don't know if anybody listening, if you guys are also um, South Park fans, and maybe I just uh, will lose some, some followers and some listeners from this, but I am. I enjoy their... <sighs> style and their technique and their messaging. And it makes me laugh about so many things. And there was an episode about fecal transplants <laughs> in true South Park fashion. It was over the top. It was satirical. It was crude and ridiculous, but it had seeds of truth. And I appreciate that it was bringing up this topic, um, even if it was sort of making fun of it. But it just kind of, again, what we're going to talk about is um, what the, the, this is kind of like a research um, review of other research and where transplants have been shown to be beneficial. But the thing is, we don't have to necessarily go that extreme. There absolutely can be cases where that might be the best choice, but it just comes back to saying how important your microbiome is, the right strain of bacteria, the right balance, the right healthy GI system. Um, and that's usually what they're looking at when they do these FMTs or fecal microbiota transplants is they're looking at the strains of bacteria and what that's doing on health. So if you need to do it as a transplant, there might be that case, but hey, let's also look at feeding the right strains with the right food, removing the foods that feed the bad strains, and maybe personalizing some supplementation as we go. But this was exciting to see also. Um, I learned about fecal transplants at a conference back when I was in school. I don't remember the exact year, but that would be, you know, between 15, 20 years ago. And I, I remember just being jaw dropped. Like it did not make any sense to me. It did not resonate with me. Um, it was a mouse research study saying how they took fat and thin mice and did a fecal transplant swap. Basically they took the fecal transplant from the, the obese mice 
put it in the thin mice, from the thin mice into the obese, and they saw the weight change. They shifted. It made the thin mice overweight and it made the obese mice normal weight. And I couldn't wrap my head around this. There'd been so much training of, you know, your weight is totally just a result of how you eat and exercise. Like that's it. That's all that's in into it. It just, if you're not thin, it's because you don't have the self-control or you're not eating right. Or like, that was kind of the message back then. Um, so this was the first time that I was informed that your microbiome could play a role in it. I now of course have seen massive amounts of other things that can play into it. Your sleep, your stress, your moods, your hormones, all sorts of stuff, all kinds of things that go beyond just calories in, calories out. But so it's really good to see this article in the journal of the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, because despite me being in the world of functional medical nutrition, there is still that bigger, more vocal world of conventional nutrition. And so it's cool to see this in that magazine where, again, we're finally, finally starting to make headway. It's finally coming out there. Um, so yeah, so this is about chronic disease, chronic illness, and I think it's got a really good opening paragraph. So I'm just going to read it to you because um, it's a good sort of just sum up. So the incidence of chronic disease is a growing public health concern because 133 million Americans live with at least one condition. Chronic disease is costly to treat, altogether accounting for 75% of U.S. healthcare spending, and it is the country's leading cause of mortality. A multitude of factors are responsible for the increasing prevalence of chronic health conditions. One such belief factor, uh, one such factor believed to influence the development of chronic conditions is the gut microbiome. Rehabilitating the microbiome can alleviate pain associated with chronic conditions and reduce the cost of symptom management. So I think that's powerful because it is frustrating to see that it is an expensive thing. It is a problem. So many people are sick. So many people are spending money. And it's usually just to have medications that maybe if they're lucky kind of mask the symptoms, but it's not ever really treating it. So it's good to see this research talking about the microbiome. That is a very, very important factor. We're going to talk about the, the research they're showing on that. Um, I think it's interesting that despite the many things that this article talks about, they just mentioned that it can alleviate pain associated with chronic conditions because um, it definitely can do that. There have been people who um, utilizing the GI map stool test and seeing that there's like an overabundance of bacteria creating um, inflammatory cytokines and pain pain markers can help with that, but there's so many other things. So I'm not sure why they kind of pinpointed that specific symptom there. Um, anyway, so moving on, they then talk a little bit about the history of fecal transplants. I'm going to kind of skip over that, but they do then discuss the different things where fecal transplants, and therefore you can sort of elude that gut microbiome health and care in one fashion or another will play a role. So the very first one they mention is um, the success of FMT to treat Clostridium difficile. So C. diff, nasty thing, lots of diarrhea, usually occurs after strong rounds of antibiotics. So if you ever are on a bunch of antibiotics and you start to have a lot of loose stool or GI issues, keep that one in mind. Um, so yes, again, the idea is with that, 
antibiotics wipe out everything, the good and the bad. And then whatever you feed or whatever you kind of fertilize or, or um, support your microbiome with, it's going to either feed the good or feed the bad. And unfortunately, most of us feed the bad. So um, whatever takes root first usually wins. C. diff is really good at taking root first. So keep that in mind and be cautious of antibiotics. Use them as needed, but not more than that. Um, so yes, so they're seeing that FMT can help treat C. diff. And then they go on to discuss a whole bunch of other chronic diseases. So FMT is currently being investigated for the treatment of cardiometabolic, neurological, psychiatric, neoplastic, autoimmune, inflammatory, and GI disorders. The gut is involved in all of it. So wide range of potential treatments and just shows again, that importance of the microbiome to help in a cost-effective, safe method of treating chronic disease. So one that they were looking at uh, is the metabolic health. So definitely certain microbes promote um, obesity. Like I said, in the mice, they found that, but there are certain families of bacteria and even if they're good, if they're in the wrong ratio, there are certain ones that cause the body to essentially absorb more calories from food than average. So you can eat the same thing as someone else and your body actually holds on to more calories. So people with that imbalance might have more trouble losing weight. There are other things that if it's out of balance can add to insulin resistance and blood sugar issues and insulin sensitivity. We see a higher incident of type two diabetes with certain um, patterns with uh, the strains. Um, so yeah, and, and then of course, adipose tissue inflammation is seen from other strains and other types of bacteria as well. Uh, cancer, animal research is showing promising effects in treating cancer. So they're looking at different types, including lung cancer, colon cancer, and leukemia. And they're finding that certain bacteria can inhibit the growth and progression of malignancy related to colon cancer. So very cool. Certain bacteria have anti-tumor promoting mechanisms um, and just really looking at that. And again, they mention not only organ damage, but also possibly helping reduce inflammation. It's a word you hear me use a lot because it's at the root of so much. So they're looking at uh, transplants to help with organ health, reducing inflammation, and possibly as preventative treatment. So again, good strain, high quality professional probiotics, ideally tailored to what's going on in your microbiome based on a test, um, but just eat the vegetables, eat the fiber, get all of that good probiotic foods, that sort of thing. Also, psychiatric disorders. Um, there's definitely a connection here. Uh, this one I read about a couple years ago, the first time where in conjunction to the cognitive therapy, they were using strain-specific probiotics to work with depression, anxiety, and obsessive compulsive disorder. Um, so we, they are mentioning some of these in here, such as mood disorders, substance use disorders, and eating disorders. Because Gut-brain connection, there's a connection. So examples of potential mechanisms of the gut and brain relationship is through immune, endocrine, and neural pathways. For example, the gut in dysbiosis has increased levels of SCFAs, short-chain fatty acids, and these specifically influence the vagus nerve. 
could do a whole topic on the vagus nerve, but basically the big pathway where the brain and the gut connect and cause things to happen. So they do see more compulsivity, anxiety, and other issues. So they're looking at uh, the investigation of transplants for all of that or supplements possibly. And uh, then they also talk about neurodegenerative disease. So they're looking at um, using uh, research has shown promise of FMT in treating neurodegenerative diseases such as Parkinson's. So that's a big one. Um, animal studies have been showing some good things. Again, that the SFCA is the short chain fatty acids in the gut. Cause again, that the gut and the nerve there's, there's that connection. So motor abnormalities are seen with Parkinson's and other such uh, neuro neurological issues. So very cool to see that this is coming out. Um, so yes, that's probably the highlights of this. So there's definitely things to keep in mind. Like anything, we're still learning a lot about the gut as much as research is exploding with it in the grand scheme of things, it's still new. So we're trying to, we don't have some page out there that says, this is exactly what a gut should look like. And it should have exactly these microbes and these ratios and these proportions and these ranges, um, because it does seem to be different for so many things. Um, people who are more active tend to have a different ratio of those calorie absorbing things than people who are not, is that cause and effect, which one, you know, chicken and the egg, um, does it change based on genetics? Does it change based on location and you know, like globally, um, the soil composition of foods can affect it. So we're not entirely sure of all the nuances, but we are definitely learning a lot because research is exploding and that's a good thing, but you have to keep up on it and be mindful of it. So those are my two articles. And my plan is for the last Monday of the month to be a research review like this. Let me know if you like that idea and what things you would like to hear updated research about. So thank you again for listening and supporting this channel and page. Thank you to those who are subscribing. Join the team. If you find this content beneficial for people, liking, commenting, or subscribing really helps the algorithm so that more people can find the content and hopefully learn something new and useful. So have a great week, team.